If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 will be in verses 25 to 30 this morning. Um, let me tell you this. If, if you just prayed the, the prayer that Jacob led us through, if you prayed that, you, you got what this sermon is going to be about. Um, thank you, brother, for that. Um, this text is about the God who is most approachable. The God who has come to us, who is Jesus Christ, both God and man, so that he might unite God and man together. That's who we get to see. That's who we get to hear from. And this is an amazing text here because what Jesus is doing for all of us this morning is he is bidding us to come to him. Because when we get him, we get God himself. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in eternity past, it was your gracious will that you would choose to save a wretched people. How gracious you have always been in your very nature. You are grace. And you sent not someone who is subpar to you, but you sent the Son who shares the same essence. For you desired us to come to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us this truth. Thank you for preserving it so that 2,000 years later we might have it. Holy Spirit, we thank you and we praise you that you open up our eyes to see how God reveals himself to us. And we're asking yet again this morning that you would open up our eyes, that we would hear you speak to us, and that we would come to Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Never tell a dog to come to you and then immediately punish that dog. At least, don't do it all the time. It's my dad who's a veterinarian used to tell me, especially when I got Baxter when I was a junior in college, Baxter was a dog who would often poop and pee around the house. My roommates thoroughly enjoyed that. 
But one of the things that can happen is that you can get in the habit of whenever you see the dog make a mistake, you will call the dog to you. And as soon as the dog comes to you, you punish the dog. Well, you know what will happen the more and more you do that. The dog will stop coming to you. Right? Brothers and sisters, what is it that might keep you from coming to Jesus Christ? Is it a fear that all you will get is punishment? That all you will get is condemnation? And so often when we think that way, what we do is we try to clean ourselves up, we try to package ourselves up, and then we come to Jesus thinking we can impress him. But what Jesus is calling us to do in this text right here is he's calling us, not a fake version of ourselves, but he's calling us to come to him to receive mercy. The real you. Martin Luther used to say that Jesus is a real savior of real sinners, so stop making yourselves look not that bad. This is what Jesus is doing here, because in this context, as we saw what Jason preached last week in uh, the beginning of Matthew 11, we see John the Baptist was calling sinners to repent, to embrace God's ways, but they refused God. So Jesus has been saying, look, you got it all wrong if you're not listening to what John has been telling you. And even after, Jesus kind of got a little intense with them. But... He is also calling those same people, the stubborn unbelievers, he's calling them to himself so that you might receive mercy. You see, this is the Jesus we can come to. This is the Jesus who, who we're called to approach, him who is gentle and lowly in heart. That's where the text is going to build up to, but there are, there are two things we need to see before we actually unpack that in verses 28 to 30. First off, we need to see that God reveals himself to us by grace. He reveals himself to us by grace. Look at verse 25 again. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but you've revealed them, or and you've revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus praises the Father as he prays publicly. He's praising the Father. How does he describe the Father? He describes him as Lord of heaven and earth. Paul will use this language in Colossians 1 verse 16, talking about how Jesus himself is the ruler of heaven and earth. And he says also the visible and invisible. In other words, from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, God is the sovereign. That's what Jesus is saying about him. He is the king. The father is the one who rules over all. And he is saying in front of all these people, he is praising the father as the one who is the true king. And the father is the one who brings in the true kingdom. See, actually this phrase for the Lord being the Lord of heaven and earth, it would also be a description of God who would bring the end time kingdom into the now. What is the end time kingdom? We've been talking about this in RUF on Wednesday nights as we've been preaching through the parables. The end time kingdom was the kingdom that the Old Testament had promised 
when God would bring in a kingdom that would make all things right. Now, but when he brings in the end time kingdom now, he gives it as it were in appetizer form, or as I like to say, the appetizer form, rather than the full entree. It's the Costco sample, and then, and then later you'll get the full dish. You see, he gives it to us now where it is true, but we don't see the fullness of it yet. We live in the already, but not yet. But the Lord of heaven and earth is one who brings in this end time kingdom where we might see that in him we might have rest. And this is the way in which he brings it about. Jesus is saying, how do you know that this is happening? Well, it's because he's hidden things and he's also revealed things. Jesus is praising the Father because of how he reveals his salvation or how the Father reveals what Jesus is saying, what Jesus has done. You see, the process in which, uh, or excuse me, let me put it this way. What is revelation? Revelation is the process of how something is revealed, right? Revelation implies that we don't have the knowledge we need and it needs to be revealed to us. That's what Jesus is saying. Saying that the Father has the knowledge and if we are to know it, he must reveal it to us. And this is what happens when the end time kingdom comes. The Father reveals it to us. But how does it happen? See, actually, first of all, happens negatively. Negatively, the, the father, it says he has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. That does not sound fair, does it? He's hidden these things from the wise and understanding or the wise and the learned. Who are these people who Jesus is talking about? Certainly he is talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers of the day, the people who thought they had all the knowledge. But in reality, the Father has hidden the true knowledge from them. But more generally, more broadly, who is Jesus speaking about? He's speaking about those who are too proud to embrace God's grace. One of the things that happens is that when we are too proud... We don't want to see our sin, so we ignore it. And we don't want to depend on God's grace, so we reject it. And how that happens in the heart is that we harden our hearts, and also at the same time, God hardens our hearts. How you understand that totally, I don't know, but Scripture proclaims both. Pride will destroy us. You see, pride is sin. And the people who are proud, they do not deserve to know God's truth. Sin is against God. Sin deserves death. And so if we begin to think, well, how is God fair for this? Actually, we're asking the wrong question because in our pride, we don't even want God. Isaiah 29 verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, I will, talking about in those end times when Jesus would come, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. 
you would, you would ask, what is that wonder? Here's what it is. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. How do you know that the gospel is at work somewhere? When it is hidden from the proud, but it is revealed to the humble. Isn't this what matches up with what Jesus says in Matthew 9 verse 12? When he says, those who are healthy have no need for a physician, but those who are sick have need for a physician. My friends, one of the best things that can happen to you is that you realize you are sick. What kills faith, pride, self-sufficiency, or the I'm not that bad mentality? That's who tends to not see what God is doing, but positively, who is God revealing the works of Jesus to? It says, and he's revealed them to little children. Little children were not looked upon in high esteem in those days. They were insignificant to the world, but what God is saying is this, is that those whom the world looks at as insignificant, they are significant to me. God loves to draw near to the people who are passed over, the people who have significant sins and weaknesses, the people who seem to have nothing to offer God, but those are the people that God delights to draw near. So cheer up. You are way worse than you think. But God loves to draw near to you, especially when you know your weakness. It is interesting here, we see this this theme of hiddenness and revelation, and it's the same themes that we see in the doctrines such as election or predestination. This idea that it is God who opens blind eyes. I remember one person came to RTS, and his name was Rico Tice. He was from London, and uh, he came and gave this conference on evangelism, and what the thing that he repeated over and over and over is this. We preach Christ crucified. God opens blind eyes. He said that so many times. I guarantee you everyone who was at that conference will remember that. We preach Christ crucified, but do we open blind eyes? No, it's impossible. God opens blind eyes. That's what he does. That's what Jesus is praising the Father for. And I think it's very interesting here. He thanks the Father for this. Isn't that amazing? Don't miss this. Do you want to praise God more? Do you want to have your heart warmed to worship him? See the sovereignty of his grace. See the graciousness of his grace. Jesus is praising the Father for his sovereign grace And that is what has always moved God's people to praise him more. That's exactly what has happened in all the major revivals throughout church history. If you go and read church history, you will see that in every major and true revival, what are the doctrines, what are the teachings that are proclaimed the most? It is the fact that God saves people even though we deserve nothing and we cannot save ourselves. Do you know why that's amazing? Because everything in us deserves death and damnation. God does not come to us when we deserve it. So when he gives it to us, 
He does not take it away when we sin. You see that? It has always been what has moved God's people to praise him more is when we see the truth of sovereign grace. See, brothers and sisters, what, one thing we have to remember is Reformed theology is one of the nicknames by which we call it. Reformed theology is all about making God bigger than ourselves. That makes sense because he's God and we're not, right? It is all about making God bigger than ourselves. But we also have to remember, Reformed theology should make you praise God rather than pummel people with it. If you're pummeling people with your doctrine, you do not understand the doctrine. Because this doctrine will make you humble. When you truly understand what God has done, it will make you praise him. See, what Jesus is thanking the Father for is that the nature of salvation, it is all of grace. God loves to choose the weak, the helpless, the dependent. My friends, some of you might think you have absolutely nothing to offer God. Welcome to the club. Some of you have family members who are suffering from special needs. I remember we had a student in youth ministry. And he was, I believe he was 18, but we were told that uh, his mind was probably functioning more so as like a third or fourth grader. And one of the most amazing things ha- happened when we were there. And, you know, because oftentimes you'd be teaching and you'd be preaching and he'd be distracted and, and you would just wonder, like, is anything going on? Do you know who one day wanted to go before the elders of the church to profess their faith and be baptized and take the Lord's Supper? Him. My friends, never put any obstacles in front of God. When we have children or brothers and sisters or parents or siblings or whatever it is who are struggling with special needs, my friends, think the highest of God's promises. Amen? See, we can also remember that those who struggle with sin and unbelief, you might think that you might disqualify yourself from salvation, that the more you struggle with believing that Christ is enough for you, that Here's how you picture Jesus. You picture Jesus crossing his arms saying, I cannot believe you don't fully believe in me yet. My friends, did Jesus ever tell us that our faith would be perfect this side of heaven? No. As a matter of fact, maybe one of the reasons why it's not perfect this side of heaven is so that we would stay dependent on him. You see, Satan, here's what he loves to do. He loves to get us to put more of our thoughts on our abilities or disabilities, whatever they might be. He loves to keep us focused on ourselves rather than Christ. He has two tactics, essentially. The first one is to make people proud. Because when we're proud of ourselves and our abilities, what do we do? Where are we looking? We're looking at ourselves. We're not looking at Christ. But then maybe that first tactic doesn't work. And, and we're, we're, we're coming to Christ, but then here's what he will do. His second tactic is to make you despair. He'll make you totally focused with, you might be saying, well, 
Jesus couldn't love me because I had too much in my past. I have too much red in my ledger. But see, that makes no sense when you even you look at the book of Matthew and just go to the very first section of the book of Matthew and look at Jesus' genealogy. Some all-stars there, right? David, who was a murderer and adulterer. Judah and Tamar. My friends, in the genealogy of Matthew, they didn't even name Bathsheba because they wanted to show how gruesome the sin of David was. If you think that somehow your sin is more than God's grace, you need to come back to who Jesus is. He is a savior of sinners. How many of our problems might be solved if we just remembered these two tactics of Satan? You see, if we want to strike hardest against the kingdom of hell, then we need to be a people who look far more upon God and the gospel than ourselves. And we need to get others to do the same. A mature Christian is the person who is finally learning to look less at themselves and to look more at Christ. I love what Mary, Queen of Scots, said of John Knox. She said, I fear John Knox upon his knees, talking about in prayer, more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Oftentimes, God will show you how sinful you are and how weak you are so that you'll actually get on your knees. Because then, as Paul says, when you are weak, then God is strong. This is how God works. This is how God brings his kingdom. He gives it to those. He reveals it to those who are weak. And it's all by grace. Look at verse 27. God also grants himself to us by grace. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Woo! Jesus is saying some pretty charged stuff right here. Not just for us today, but especially back then. What Jesus was saying would have been a massive offense to those people back then because what he is telling them, is says, look, you don't really know the Father, but I do. That's pretty crazy. You better be right. There are many things that Jesus does in Scripture where you want to look at it and when you're honest, you want to say, he better be right or things are about to get really bad. Matter of fact, because he was right, things got really bad. Jesus is saying that he has received all things from the Father. Remember, Jesus has just prayed to the Father saying, you're the Lord of heaven and earth. So when the Father gives all things to Jesus, he is giving him everything visible and invisible. Who is the Lord of glory? The Son of God. Jesus Christ is saying in this moment before all these people and before us today that he has the ultimate authority to rule and he has the ultimate authority to reveal. When Jesus is saying this, he is saying that he has a co-authority with the Father. When people say that Jesus, never in the book of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, that somehow he never makes claims to divinity, that is utterly false and you want to wonder if they've ever read the scriptures before because right here he is saying I am equal to the father we believe in one God and three persons the father son and holy spirit not three gods but one God one 
eternal, unchangeable essence, but yet three persons. In the Athanasian Creed, basically a creed that was written a long time ago. But it's a creed that says this, part of it says that Jesus, the Son, he is equal to the Father as concerning his Godhead. Jesus is not a demigod, a JV team God. He is God. He shares the same essence as the Father, even though the relation between the Father and the Son might be different, but the Son shares everything that the Father has that makes God God. Jesus is implying something that is absolutely massive here, because here's what he is saying. If you want to get the Father, you need to get me. Do you want to know why Jesus would eventually go to the cross? It's because of sayings like this. Jesus is telling them, you think that you can just go to the temple and just go through that sacrificial system, which, by the way, was leading to me? And you can just adopt even more laws and practices, and as long as you just try really, really hard and make sure you go through the rhythms, that that's how you get to know the Father? No, my friends, the entire temple was leading you to me. Jesus is the God of heaven dwelling on earth. That's who he is. When we get Jesus, you see what's happening here. Jesus is saying, all things have been given to me, so when you get Jesus, you get all things. Amen? Not Jesus plus something else. No, 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 my friends. When you get Jesus, you get everything you need. It's not just... Jesus, but then his stuff is really great. If you merely had Jesus, you would have everything. But then also on top of that, he just puts even more icing on the cake, as it were. Getting Jesus is getting everything. Jesus is saying that if you're going to know the Father, then you need to have me. But yet, this revelation, this process of revealing to you the truth It only happens by God's sovereign grace. Jesus is saying, if someone has the exact fullness of the knowledge of the Father, it's actually me, not you. (laughs) Woo! That's tough. But he's right. You see, the Son and the Father have known each other for all eternity. And the knowledge that Jesus reveals to us by the Holy Spirit It is a knowledge, it's not identical to the knowledge that the Son has of the Father, but it is analogical. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. Last night, I was trying to explain to Knox, who is almost three, I was trying to explain to him what it meant for Jesus to clothe us. And so as I'm I'm putting a shirt on him and I'm trying to say, okay, so as I'm clothing you, Jesus clothes us with his righteousness. Does he understand it identically to how I understand it? No, but it is true analogically. The knowledge that he would have of it, even when he's only two and a half, is still a true knowledge. My friends, why why does this matter? Is this just theology just for the head? No, here's why it matters. Jesus is always going to be more glorious, more loving, more sovereign, 
more beautiful, more wise, more powerful, more righteous than you can ever imagine. When you know the love of God for you that surpasses all knowledge, all thought, he is still more loving. Amen? You can never outthink how beautiful he is. It is a true knowledge that we possess. But the finite cannot comprehend the infinite in totality. See, this is very important because Jesus is trying to bring us to him. And one of the things Satan loves to do is to influence these thoughts, as it were, by us having thoughts such as, well, Jesus isn't as forgiving or as merciful as we wish he was. He might be forgiving and merciful for someone else, but not for me. But the Bible is telling us that actually he is more merciful than any knowledge we could have. How could you not bring your sins to him? Jesus is saying, you cannot know the Father unless I reveal him to you. So it's this kind of co-revealing, as it were. The Father reveals the Son. The Son reveals the Father. By what agency does this happen? By the Holy Spirit. What's amazing is that God is doing all the work in us to save us, and we do nothing. We just behold. And we look at him, and we tell others, like, would you just look at him? Jesus, what he's doing here is that he is bidding the people, he's saying, look, if you want to get the Father, you've got to get me. If you want to get the Lord of heaven and earth, visible and invisible, you've got to get me. That is a bold statement. Jesus is saying that we might know about the Father, but that doesn't mean we know him. One of the things we need to see in our own day is that it seems that there can be a theme of, of people trying to know more about having good feelings rather than knowing God. It's often why people don't stay with a church very long because they're not patient enough for God's process of sanctification. Because we feel like if we're really going to know God, then we got to always have this emotional stirring. My friends, we need to have religious affections. But there are times when the Lord withholds those emotions and withholds those affections so that we might not worship the affections, but worship Him. We also need, on the other hand, to remember this. We need to remember that sometimes we can have right theology, but not a right heart. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 2 when he's talking about the Jewish people. In chapter 1, he was leveling the Gentiles saying, look, you are sinners. Got, got bad news for you. It's not good. And the Jewish people could have been tempted to be proud there, but then he goes on in Romans chapter 2 and he says, hey, look, I got bad news for you. You're not doing good. You, you have all these different things. You have the law. You've had the covenants. You've had all this history. But even you do not have eyes to see God because it takes God opening up your eyes. We preach Christ crucified, God opens blind eyes. See, one of the things we have to remember, and parents, we must always be telling our children, even if they're baptized, we must always be showing them who, uh, who Jesus Christ is and his grace in the gospel. We, we can't just say, well, we'll just put them through the process and it'll just work itself out. 
we must always be praying that God open up their eyes, that he reveal himself to them. I was baptized as an infant, but my eyes were not open until I was 20, and I grew up in a PCA church. We're seeing it happen in RUF a lot. Students grow up in the church, students have heard the gospel, but they're not born again until this time or even afterward. We must look to God to open up our eyes. Right answers and right theology is crucial, but it's not merely a head game, it's a heart game. What Jesus is showing us is that it is actually not the proud, the people who think they know it all, but rather it is the humble to whom God reveals himself. What does this mean? What is this, what's the implication of this? Or what is this inferring? That's what Jesus is building up to in verses 28 to 30. That God calls himself to us by grace. He reveals himself to us by grace. He grants himself to us by grace. And now he calls us to himself by grace. Look at verse 28. That's what Jesus is doing. Come to who? Me. Once again, that is a claim of deity. The prophets in the Old Testament would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus will never say that. Why? Because he is the Lord. Listen, don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Don't go and clean yourself up. Don't go try your best strategy. Don't go on a, try to go on a long enough streak without sinning. You go immediately to Jesus Christ. That's what you do. Jesus Christ is telling you, come to me, not anyone else. Come to me. See, Jesus is telling us that we might have right thoughts, but we must come to him to find rest. See, Jesus is not just offering us and then just saying, hey, just whatever you want to do, I just wanted to put this offer out there. Jesus, as the Lord of heaven and earth, is commanding everyone in this room right now. He is commanding you to come to him. But why is he doing that? Because he's mean? No. Because he desires you. He desires you. He is calling you to come to him, commanding you to come to him. This is the same God we read about in Isaiah 55.1 who says this, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. In other words, it's free. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. You bring everything to Jesus. You don't go and do anything else, and you bring it all to him, and you lay it down on the cross, and he will take you as you are. Amen? How often are we just going through those phases where we're constantly trying to beat ourselves up, or we try to hit those levels of maturity first before coming to Jesus, or we're trying to exhaustively deal with our past, but you have to remember that if I'm 31 and I try to deal exhaustively with 31 years of the past, that'll take 31 years, and that's another 31 years of sinning. Good luck. My friends, are you burdened? Are you tired? Are you weary? Come to Jesus. He is calling the heavy laden, those who are exhausted with grief and burdens over their own sin. They've been working so hard. The picture of the burdened is the picture of 
in Jonah chapter 1 when the ship was overloaded with cargo and it's threatening to break up? Does your conscience, when you think about your sin and the things you've done in the past, does it weigh you down? My friends, Jesus is calling you with everything you got. And he's telling you, come to me because I know how to deal with it. Are there any qualifications? Nope. Any prerequisites? No. No matter who you are, no matter what you bring, the promise of God is that you will find rest in Jesus Christ. Sometimes i got to say it loud because we need to hear it loud. Amen? George Whitfield was once asked uh, along the line something like, well, why are you so loud? Because people need to be woken up. Jesus is really, truly ready to receive sinners. Some of you might say, well, Jesus here is saying that he'll give me rest, but I still feel very anxious and depressed. Am, am I not a true believer? Remember what we said earlier. The goal is that we would come to Jesus, not rest in something else like feelings and emotions. There are the times when Jesus does give us peace. There are the times he does give us assurance of salvation, but there are also the times when we, he withholds it for various reasons. And not always because of your sin. Sometimes he just withholds it so that you would cling to him. I give this example to people all the time. I think I've given it to you. I do it in counseling situations all the time. When you're doing pull-ups in the gym, if you're going to do, let's say, 10, I'm just trying to do one. But if you're going to try to do 10, one through eight might be pretty easy, but when you hit nine and 10, that's when it gets hard. When you hit nine and 10, you feel gravity even more. Your body's trembling. Your hands are squeezing the bar even more so. My friends, when are you getting stronger in that workout? Numbers one through eight or nine and 10? Nine and 10. When you feel most of the weight of your sin, most of the weight upon your conscience, most of the weight of struggling with unbelief and dying to know that Jesus might be merciful for me, and so you keep coming back to his word and you keep saying, Lord Jesus, please convince me that this is true, that you really do wash away all my sins. You really do set me free. You really do clothe me with righteousness. When is the moment he is strengthening your faith? It's in that moment. Not always when it's easy to believe. My friends, take heart. God's at work. Jesus is bidding you, commanding you, come to me. I will give you rest. Why does he say this? He says this because he is gentle and lowly in heart. It's an amazing text. That's why I encourage you to come find me afterward to... Um, First lucky winner uh, to get Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. It really is great. I read this quote to you at the beginning of the service. I'll read it again. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. His posture most naturally to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. My friends, what Jesus is saying is so contrary to what they were hearing in that day because he'll actually say in another place in, in Matthew where he'll say, you know, the teachers of the day, they would hound you. They would burden you with these burdens that they wouldn't lift a finger. 
They wouldn't do anything to help you. They would say, you better do this. You better be enough. And when you work really, really hard, you still can't really be sure that you're saved. But Jesus is saying, I'm the complete opposite. I am the one who is gentle and lowly. I am the one who relieves your burdens. The yoke that you take upon, my yoke that you take upon yourself, it is a yoke of freedom. You see, Satan loves to make us picture a harsh Jesus. But Jesus is not. He's not like as maybe some college football coaches when they would go out recruiting, they would promise, at least when I was going through it, they would make all these promises to these recruits saying, well, if you come here, you'll get this and you'll get this. And you would hear so many stories about they would go to those schools and they would get none of it. Jesus is not like that. When he tells you he is merciful, he means it. He is more merciful than you could ever imagine. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, says his heart has only expanded since his ascension into heaven. My friends, Jesus Christ is bidding you with all your sins, with all your struggles, with the thoughts and the desires that just wreck your conscience. He is telling you to bring all of it to him because he knows how to take care of it. Amen? Don't you let anything hold you back from him. Anything that seeks to boast of being somehow a a greater way than Jesus or anything that talks about giving the gospel help or assistance to, to understand it or for people to really grow, those should always be red flags to God's people. Anything that waters down the gospel, anything that says the gospel needs help to be either understood or to help people grow, anything that takes the focus away from Jesus should always be a red flag for the church. Always. Jesus is enough. Jesus knows how to save you and change you. You might not always feel like it. Welcome to the club. (laughs) But he is always at work. My friends, that's why J.C. Ryle said we must always get back to the old paths because when we try to create something new, it never goes well. If we want to be a church that grows into maturity, if we want to be Christians that grow into maturity, we know we're growing that way the faster we run to Jesus with everything we got, not the slower. Immediately when you feel guilt and shame, when you run to him, that's when you know you're growing and understanding who he is. When people come up to you and are confessing their sin, you know you're growing in maturity as a church when you're leading them faster to Jesus, not saying, hey, we need to go through these steps first. My friends, show them the royal diadem of Christ. It is always him. That is who Jesus is drawing our attention to. He's drawing our attention to himself because that is where we find salvation. The story about Staff Sergeant Phil Baldwin of Outlaw Platoon. He was 34 when 9-11 happened. He didn't merely say that he supported his country, but when 9-11 happened, he took an 80% pay cut from his normal job to enlist in the army. And he became an army ranger where he would fight in one of the most dangerous places in the world. How serious was Phil Baldwin about wanting to support his country? He was so serious that for him and his opportunities, he enlisted to fight. My friends, how serious is Jesus Christ about saving sinners? He is so serious that he went to the cross to take the wrath of God 
so that we might be welcomed in with open arms so that he might wash us clean, forgive us, and clothe us with his righteousness. That's what you have, but you must come to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would stoke the fires of our hearts. Maybe some of us are just just barely just glowing. Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would blow upon our hearts so that we might burst into a flame. But we need help. Because oh, how the evil one loves to keep us away. Convince us this morning that Christ is enough. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.